to my mind, the fastest, easiest, and cheapest way to address climate change is investing in the sustainable development, the energy efficiency, the decarbonization of the developing countries, and especially the poorest countries. So creating markets, making these markets work, and accepting that they're not perfect, but they're the cheapest, fastest way to address climate change is the most important challenge of our time. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to Commodities in Asia on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Ken Newcomb, Chairman and CEO at Sequest Capital. We'll be discussing the energy transition as lifestyle transformation and the catalytic and transformative role of carbon finance in the developing countries of Asia, Africa, and across the global south. Hello, Ken. Welcome to Smarter Markets. I'm so pleased to be here, Dave. And I am very pleased to have you here. It's been a long time coming. We've been trying to sit down together since the AIDA North America Climate Summit back in September. But now talking with you in the middle of CALP 28, I mean, couldn't have been better. Well, yes, it's uh, it's good timing for me. I just got in from Dubai into Los Angeles and so left from the zoo of uh, 70,000 people in uh, in Dubai and a lot of excitement, a lot of churning. We don't know the outcome yet, but it's a, it's a very important event. And I'd love to talk with you about that and get some of your impressions. You know, one thing that's been coming out in the reporting from COP28 has been the spotlight that's been put on the need among emerging markets and developing countries. One report that they'll need $2.4 trillion per year in investment to cap emissions and adapt to the challenges posed by climate change. For context, that's about 10% of US annual GDP. And of course, we're nowhere near meeting that need. On top of that, it's been a very difficult year for climate finance with media and legal attacks on the integrity of the voluntary carbon markets in particular, leading to a pullback in carbon finance. I'm hoping maybe we can start there and you might be able to put some of that need in context for us. At your company, Sequest Capital, you refer to energy transition as lifestyle transformation. In the global south, including South and Southeast Asia, where you have a number of projects underway, this means a transformation in how people cook, how they grow food. In essence, climate finance is a source of capital for economic development. So I wanted to ask you, how important is this source of finance in the countries in which you operate? And could you give us some examples of what that type of finance develops? Yes, it's incredibly important. And the context here is there's really two worlds operating in parallel. There's the move to decarbonize in the industrialized sector and to transform power systems from fossil fuel-based to renewables-based. But our clients aren't connected to the grid. Our clients, two and a half billion or so, are really reliant on wood fuels for the most part. And I'm talking here about firewood and charcoal. 
they dream of having access to electricity, and perhaps some of them do with solar panels, but their world is one of declining access to firewood, declining tree cover, reduction gradually in the, the fertility of their soils, and more and more precarious living with respect to whether or not they're going to be able to grow the food they need simply for their subsistence. In that context, carbon finance for us in what we do in the poorest communities in the poorest countries has to do with transforming their technologies in terms of the way they cook and transforming the way they produce food so that they're better adapted to a world that is inevitable, inexorable of climate change and increasing climate risk. And the most important part of the post-Paris Agreement world for the private sector in support for these communities to make the, the transformation to a beyond carbon world of financially sustainable alternatives that are adapted to climate change is that private capital is now motivated for the first time to work with the poorest communities, not just to go to developing countries for extractive industries like oil and gas or mining, or perhaps agricultural products like tobacco and, and other foodstuffs, but to focus with surgical precision on poverty alleviation for the base of the pyramid communities who suffer that dilemma of having to walk further and further every day to collect fuel and who suffer mightily in terms of the health impacts of the traditional way that they cook on open, on smoky open fires and the massive uptick in charcoal production as Africa urbanizes and because of the declining fertility of the soils, these people have to migrate to cities with the prospect of jobs, which of course are scarce. But as they do, they increase tremendously their demand on, on firewood in this vicious cycle because they switch from, from wood to charcoal. So what's pleasing, if you can think of anything that's pleasing, is that in the period 2020 to 2022, there was proof of concept that capital would flow to the least developed countries. Trove research showed that in that period, the developing countries attracted $17 billion worth of investment. And remarkably, India and China were the minority of that. Nine billion of that went to developing countries other than India and China, who in the Kyoto era were probably 70 to 80% of total carbon finance. And even inside that 9 billion, 2.2 billion went to the least developed countries. So that showed the promise of the future carbon markets, actually recognizing that there was an opportunity to not only have relatively low cost emissions reductions, but to transform the lives of the poor to be better adapted to climate change. And when you look at, the, there was the proof of concept, large amounts of capital flowing into some of the poorest countries to help them. How has that changed, if at all, this year? We've seen that there's been a disruption in that flow of finance. How big has that disruption been from your point of view? And what has it been disrupting when those dollars stop flowing? It's been a virtual collapse. So that was a buoyant period, 20 to 22. But since 22, I would say from about 15 months ago, because of criticism of carbon credits, carbon offsets, as it now is pejoratively called, 
as an asset class, prices in the market that we see in our products have dropped to 40%, and investment has pretty much collapsed. So everybody talked about going from $5 billion to $150 billion of flows through the carbon markets, through the voluntary carbon markets, between 2020 and 2030. But the impact of the criticisms of the asset class of carbon offsets, carbon credits, has led to a virtual collapse. So what that's meant is that we, no, we can no longer go naked long. When we raised capital, we raised more than $400 million over the last two years. The idea was if we build it, they will come. If we create the emissions reductions in these high development impact areas with the extraordinary opportunity to transform the lives of the poor permanently and not temporarily because we could underwrite the risk of the future in the sense that we could go to scale, demonstrate the alternatives and provide them on a financially sustainable basis for a very low cost once willingness to pay was established through exposure at scale. We can't do that anymore because we're not confident that we can sell the emissions reductions that are created. And in our business, we built clean cooking solutions, two stoves per household in 3 million households over the last three years, gradually building up to 1.2 million households across the world, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa this year. Next year, we'll go from 1.2 million or more to a couple of hundred thousand. And even then, that's not all hedged either. So the impact that we can have and that we can demonstrate that the private sector uniquely can have as an agent of economic development is now stymied, it's stalled because of the collapse of confidence in the, in the global voluntary carbon markets. And can you put the, like in context, that flow of capital, I know you've spent over two decades earlier in your career at the World Bank. What are the carbon markets or what can carbon markets do in terms of providing that finance that helps with economic development in some of the poorest countries that institutions like the World Bank cannot? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. Of course, having been inside the World Bank for 24 years, and a lot of it as a senior manager and in a position of being able to catalyze change as an entrepreneur, I know well what the bank can do, but I also know well what the bank can't do, or development finance institutions or NGOs. And what we can do as the private sector when we have the motivation that's driven by being able to create and sell emissions reductions in the post-Paris world is to literally face the client for extended periods to bring about this transformation. The World Bank and other development finance institutions deal through governments. They do not face the client directly. They try and build capacity in developing countries so that they can be effective implementing agents of change. But in the poorest countries, the further you get away from an urban area, the less likely you'll see a visible presence of competent agents that can deliver truly transformative change. The private sector can do that because it's motivated to recover its capital and make a return that's commensurate with the risk that we face. And we have to be on the job. We have to deliver a quality product. And we have to be able to talk to the client and understand what's working and what's not, 
And because we have that direct interface, we can bring about change. We can improve data capture. We can improve monitoring and verification. And we can change the product as we see deficiencies in it over time. That's a very important opportunity for the private sector. In my business, we, we call that private sector-led economic development on the basis of mutual prosperity, that our license to serve these communities depends on an outcome of their increased prosperity as we obtain a return on our capital that is needed to continue to mobilize capital at scale. The World Bank can complement that. Everybody understands the role of the private sector. If you live inside a development finance institution like the World Bank, it's all about mobilizing private capital for development in public-private partnerships. But that's a pretty fuzzy boundary and needs to be perfected over time. So perfecting the collaboration between the private sector in the new era, when the private sector can be an agent directly of poverty alleviation and economic development, and what the World Bank can do in what's called the enabling environment needs to be better defined. And I am in discussions with the World Bank about what that means in the context of mobilizing carbon finance. And when I hear you talk about some of these lifestyle transformations, you know, a simple example is getting people to use cook stoves instead of open wood fires. It doesn't seem entirely different in concept from what we see in more developed countries of switching over from a fossil fuel using solar panels, where it's cheaper, it's cleaner once you've made the transition, but there's a cost to doing it. And there's kind mm. of a hurdle to get over. And the carbon finance can be a way of catalyzing people to make that change, which over the long run, once they make the adjustment, can improve not only you know reduce their carbon emissions, but improve quality of life. Is that an accurate way to think about it? Or how do you think about your role? That's, an, that's absolutely perfect as a characterization of the challenge. You know, I reflect on, uh, on rooftop solar here in the US and in Australia, where I originally came from. These are all supported by subsidies, by opportunities to sell back into the grid. It's imperfect, but there are drivers in tax relief and all kinds of incentives varying from place to place, which bring about this really important transformation. What Carbon finance allows us to do, always with the view of financially sustainable futures beyond carbon, because carbon projects in the cookstove world, for example, are seven to 10 years, you have to be sure that after seven to 10 years exposure to cleaner, more efficient cooking, which changes health outcomes and increases the productivity, especially of women and empowers women, you have to be sure that you can continue to supply the clean cooking solutions at a price which these communities and women and families are prepared to pay. And so what you're really doing with carbon finance is introducing new technologies at scale, introducing training in behavior change with the reasonable expectation that it's so much better than traditional practice that the young women who grow up in the hundreds of thousands of households where we provide our clean cooking solutions country by country across sub-Saharan Africa would never think twice of going back to cooking on a three-stone fire on an open smoky fire 
that they saw their parents doing or they heard of their parents and grandparents doing because they can buy a clean cooking solution for the price of a cooking pot. That's our objective. In our factories in Cape Town, we're producing low-cost solutions which can be sold through distribution channels we're helping to create with village savings and loans focused on creating women's entrepreneurs and a last-mile connection to all of our households with people we call stove champions or the farmers, we, for those we call farm champions. We have to provide that opportunity, but it can only be done at scale. Likewise, in urban environments, we can offer the most amazing, efficient cookstoves, which are cleaner, faster, and cheaper. But people don't recognize that technology, nor do they recognize the special fuels like pelleted biomass residues. They have to be introduced quickly with a subsidy to get to the point, a tipping point in the communities where everybody recognizes this is a better way of doing it. And then they would not want to go away from that technology because they recognize the payback periods are months. And if it comes to a choice when carbon finance subsidies have gone away, they'll make the obvious choice of continuing to save money and save time and have a healthier existence. And then the ultimate goal is that at some point, much like happened in rooftop solar in the West, it becomes so cheap because you're producing at scale that it'll be more affordable for people to buy a cook stove than not in some sense. Yeah, I just heard from our you know, head of manufacturing, um, our manufacturing affiliate, Energy Africa, that we've been able to bring down the price of a 20-watt solar panel, which we produce in our factories in Cape Town, from $24 as a recommended wholesale price in our countries like Malawi, for example, to $12 over the last year. And obviously that's a big break for a German certified technology. And it's illustrative of the transition and the journey we're on, but that has to be supported directly or indirectly by carbon finance. And it's very different from the world of renewable energy in the OECD. It's tailor-making clean energy to the needs of the rural poor and the peri-urban poor in the developing countries. And on this podcast, we've heard a lot and discussed a lot with other guests. The notion, as you said, there are different energy transitions in different parts of the world. I imagine there are also different lifestyle transformations. I'm curious, in the various countries you operate, what are some of the other examples of transformations or projects? You talked a lot about cook stoves in Africa. Mm. Are there others in other countries that you know you think are are crucial? Well, I should explain why we enter these markets to provide clean cooking solutions. It's not just to transform permanently the way people cook. It's not just the beyond carbon clean cooking solution which they realize they not only can afford, but should afford. But it's empowering women with extra time, two to three hours a day of extra time, because with our clean cooking solution, they no longer have to go and cut trees. They can use crop residues and the twigs and branches of perennial shrubs. And that time is essential for them to transform the way they produce food. So for us, it's what we call in the parlance of the carbon market, an avoidance removals transition. But in practical terms, it's enabling and empowering women who are the gardeners, the caregivers, who keep 
family units functional and productive to change the way they produce food. And that essentially is adaptation to climate change and not just a mitigation outcome in terms of creating and selling emissions reductions. That transformative regenerative agriculture is really the focus of our business. The direction of travel of Sequest is to create opportunities for productivity through improved health comes and time savings for the real change agents, which are women, to change the way they produce food and they produce cash crops, to take climate risk off the table despite the challenge the ever-growing challenge of climate change. So regenerative agriculture and, and sustainable agriculture is a real focus now. And our ambition is to get by 2030 to 3 million households, 3 million smallholder farmers that are practicing a form of agriculture, which is radically different from tradition, but enables them to be prosperous in the face of climate change. And, and what do farmers need to be able to make that transition? That transition is fundamentally about changing from a colonial set of practices which said, clean the fields, burn all of the residue, make it look nice, ridge all of the soils, expose the soil, and then pile it up in, in nice ridges across the field. And over time, that's meant a decline in organic matter to dramatic proportions, less than half a percent soil organic carbon in the soils in the communities that we are working with. And that means they can only produce food now by buying chemical fertilizer. And guess what? Over the last two years, triggered by the Ukraine war, fertilizers in Africa have gone up three or fourfold. And it literally is true that if you don't get hold of your allocation of chemical fertilizer from the government that recognizes that fertilizers are absolutely fundamental to food production and to avoid hunger, then you literally do starve. Your crops look anemic, chlorotic, as they say, yellow stunted maize stalks. And so life is now dependent on a commodity which is more expensive, it's self-generating climate change, and governments just cannot afford the foreign exchange to do it. So what's happening in our world is introducing intensive nitrogen-fixing agroforestry, intensive for the food crops of maize, could be cassava, whatever it is across the agricultural ecosystems of sub-Saharan Africa. Literally 18,000 trees, nitrogen-fixing trees, planted as an annual crop every year with maize, and harvested, killed at 11 months, shaved off at the ground, and laid down in the hot weather of October, November, before the rains in Eastern and Southern Africa, shaking off their leaves. Leaf matter is piling up as a mulch. The crop residue is just laid down, not burned. There's no tillage anymore. The world of spending 170 days cleaning and burning is gone. The, the crop has, been, has become a photosynthesis machine, capturing atmospheric carbon and storing it below ground in massive amounts of roots, which decompose to long-term storage, 95% of which does not go back to atmosphere and will stay in the soil for hundreds to thousands of years. And for the farmers, after three years, they don't need chemical fertilizers to get the four tons of maize yield per hectare 
that they have in a world of chemical fertilizer. So they save the money, they save the time, and they have a surplus. And our obligation switches then to a fair trade, a route to market for these crops. But at the same time, this biomass through agroforestry is an energy crop. 10 tons of dry biomass per hectare per year of the stems of these nitrogen-fixing trees allows us the opportunity of creating an energy product, different kinds of energy products the further you are from a capital city. But if we do our job well, all of the cooking fuels that are necessary for a large city in Africa can be grown in these intensive agroforestry systems on 10% of the land within 100 kilometers of the city, creating a closed loop economy, which is not only based on an agricultural system, which climate proofs smallholders and takes hunger off the table, but creates a carbon source. We share the carbon revenue with them as a new virtual crop and a real crop of energy, which can serve the burgeoning needs for cooking fuels and institutional cooking in the urban markets. And you can really start to see that circular system taking place. I wanted to go back. You had brought up earlier, you know, I think often in more Western countries, we think of, we're very focused on reducing emissions to reduce the harm to the climate. But of course, in the many countries in the global South, they're experiencing the harm that's already been done to the environment in terms of their own daily lives. And so there's a real need for carbon finance, not only to reduce emissions, but climate finance to help with mitigation of a changing environment, to help with restoring degraded ecosystems like the depleted soils that you discussed. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about you know, how important is finance to climate adaptation and ecosystem restoration, and where do you see it being needed the most right now? Well, what I've just been describing to you as regenerative agriculture, stabilizing food production despite increasing intensity and decreasing certainty of the risk of rainfall is actually adaptation. And in fact, we've decided that we should market the carbon that comes out of the soil organic carbon, the monetizing soil organic carbon from all of that carbon that is stored below ground in roots and in organic matter and with a healthy soil microbiome, these activities are adaptation to climate change. We're creating climate resilience. And so we're creating a product in the, the verified carbon standards, SD Vista, Sustainable Development Verification Program, that measures effectively adaptation. And we're thinking through the ways in which this adaptation product, this overlay, can allow us to confirm that the changes in smallholder agriculture through re the regenerative practices that we're promoting and that farmers are willingly adopting is actually adaptation. And that if you invest in this product, you're investing in adaptation. It's a de facto market for adaptation. And I think you probably realize it's been extremely difficult for the global community, the development finance institutions to come up with a tradable adaptation product because adaptation takes so many varied forms. It's just not possible to commoditize it. But in this particular instance, we feel we can. We feel that anybody that's investing in restoring carbon stocks in the form of permanent trees across working landscapes that is 
supporting through buying soil organic carbon as opposed to direct air capture soil organic carbon at $25 a ton or $30 a ton virtue, you know, compared to $300 to $500 a ton in direct air capture is actually investing in adaptation at the same time as really purchasing very high quality storage credits in the form of soil organic carbon or in biochar, which is also a byproduct of these systems. You had said earlier in the conversation that in uh, earlier incarnations of the carbon markets, much of the finance flowed into countries like China and India. And this time more has been flowing into more developing countries outside of China and India. Is that mainly Africa or do you see it flowing into other countries in Asia outside of India and China as well? And how do their needs compare? You know, it's very interesting. We we have projects in uh, in Laos and Cambodia and Thailand and Vietnam, in the northeast of India and across uh, Bangladesh, as well as in Central America. So we're not just focused on Sub-Saharan Africa, although most of the least developed countries are in Sub-Saharan Africa. There are least developed countries in Asia as well. And in those countries, once you get outside the cities, even, for example, outside Ho Chi Minh City, formerly Saigon, it doesn't take you long to realize that poverty is just as present there and the needs of the rural poor are very similar to those everywhere else in the world. And the solutions are different, but not in principle. In principle, you have to think about regenerative agricultural practices because they too live on a knife edge. They too live hand to mouth depending you know, on the fate of their food production, subsistence food production, and whether it's going to be disrupted by late rains, by rains that stop short, or rains that are so intensive that they create floods and wash away their crops. The picture is not very different. And the solutions, while technically they may vary in terms of what kinds of trees, what kind of agricultural systems, the story is exactly the same. And I wanted to go back, you know, because I, I talked a lot about the criticism that the voluntary carbon markets in particular came under this year and the effect that's had. I guess to be fair, need to kind of understand, you know, the line between legitimate criticism, because we want to make sure that money's actually flowing into useful things versus flowing into things that aren't useful. But I was curious, you've been a pioneer and a veteran of the carbon 1.0, so to speak, in the 2000s. So I was kind of curious. What do you make of this criticism and the line between what's legitimate and what's just counterproductive? Do carbon markets suffer you know, from a tyranny of high expectations? Do we expect things to, to be too good? You know, what can we reasonably expect of these markets? Yes. The truth is the commodity of carbon is radically different from any other commodity that in our different professions that we're used to seeing traded or being involved in trading. For example, metallurgic coal has very precise specifications. Oil products like Brent crude have very precise specifications. Different grains have precise specifications in the world grain trade. They vary, but they vary in ways which are fairly easily quantified and certified and verified. But in carbon emissions reductions, you can't touch it, feel it, or smell it. You have to believe that the way in which it's produced has credibility in the sense that without this catalytic force of climate finance, of carbon finance, 
these emissions reductions would not have happened. And then you have to be concerned that the volume of the claims is commensurate with the emissions reductions that come out. And it's really important to get our heads around the fact that this is a new commodity, incredibly diverse in terms of the ways in which you can lead to emissions reductions. Even in our own business, we're in the process of distributing 50 million LED light bulbs to the rural poor in India. We're in the process of actually we have cleaned up leaky gas pipes all across Bangladesh by going along the lines, sniffing gas with sophisticated detection instruments and sealing the leaks as we go. That's radically different from putting clean cooking solutions into a a rural household. But you can talk about landfills and all sorts of energy efficiency. The truth is these methodologies vary and they're all in the process of change as a result of the scrutiny of the market. There is no such thing as perfection in this commodity, but there is always the need to strive for perfection, always the need to get things better, to be more and more careful about measurement and to use as much of the modern technology of satellite imagery, of of digital technology to demonstrate that, for example, if a stove has been distributed to a household, it actually is being used. And we actually appreciate this scrutiny. What we don't appreciate is if it's based on poor science, if it's based on ignorance. People say ignorance is bliss, but it's not bliss for the poorest countries in the world and the poorest people if that ignorance of the real cost, the real damage function of the way traditional cooking takes place or the way traditional fuels like charcoal are produced is underestimated and the emissions reductions are underestimated and developers are are castigated because they're allegedly claiming more emissions reductions than they should. On the other hand, we take very seriously the issues of measurement and we're looking back inside our own house and asking, are we confident that the ways in which we monitor and measure and follow up, for example, in cook stoves, is going to tell us that the stoves are being used and the emissions reductions claimed are real. So there's a good side of the criticism across the board, whether it's in the reduced emissions from deforestation and degradation, the red plus sector, or in cook stoves or others. We take those criticisms seriously And we realize that in periods of rapid growth, this deployment of capital that I mentioned earlier across the developing countries, unprecedented in scale, even with the World Bank's investment in these sectors, leads to dramatic increases in the numbers of interventions. And it needs to be accompanied by ever-increasing precision so that confidence in the buyers is not only maintained, but grows. So that is a challenge. And that criticism is legitimate, and we take it, and we're doing what we can to offer to the market an emission reduction, which really does represent a ton of atmospheric benefits. But on the other hand, we've invested half a million dollars this year, demonstrating in effect that the IPCC default factors are real, and that any attempt to make them more conservative in respect of the efficiency of traditional cooking, like open fires or charcoal stoves, or the number of tons of wood that are necessary to make a ton of charcoal by traditional means should not be 
made more conservative and more punitive in terms of the parameters which allow capital to flow. There are big debates around things like what is the proportion of, of wood that's burnt that gives rise to carbon dioxide going to atmosphere where the carbon dioxide comes back because the trees regrow. There's a lot of controversy about that. It's called the fraction of non-renewable biomass. We spend a lot of money demonstrating that the damage function is actually high, should not be subject to extreme conservatism because that just simply limits the flow, which can be billions of dollars, to transform the lives of the people in the other sector, in the other energy transition, which must go in parallel to the move to renewables in the industrialized countries. It's such a such an importance of accuracy. You know, yes. we don't want to we don't want to overstate and don't want to understate. It's all about measurement and good science. And of course, then there's the responsibility to make sure that we're doing the right measurement and we're making the right claims inside our company and, and our fellow developers in this space. And because you're just back from COP, as you said, I wanna I wanna get some of your thoughts. As I said, you've been in the carbon markets for your share of COPs. Looking at COP28 with the benefit of your experience, and granted that we're not all the way through it yet, could you help us read a little bit between the lines? You know, What do you see happening? And are there some real accomplishments happening that should give us optimism or not? That's a $64 question, actually, a $64 billion question. It's very hard to read the tea leaves, to be honest, and let's see what the presidency comes out in their final statement, what progress there is in the negotiations of the critical Article 6 text, which is still under negotiation and which there's lots of square brackets denoting significant disagreement. But the COPs provide a forum for other kinds of change. And what was really pleasing to me as a founding director of VERA is that the carbon standards in the voluntary carbon market got together during COP and decided to collaborate rather than to compete. Collaborate in terms of unifying and upgrading the ways in which they measured things or the standards of the methodologies. I'm also personally excited, finally, by the progress of the Integrity Committee of the Voluntary Carbon Market where all of the carbon standards now, not only submitting their credentials to be high standard, high integrity deliverers of, of carbon products, but also to ensure that what's called CCP labels, labels which ensure that the products that the verified carbon standard, gold standard and others offer the market are consistent with high integrity outcomes, methodologies that are uniformly high. All the carbon standards got together and said, we're all on board with that. We're not going to appear to compete with each other. What's at stake is far greater than the individual fortunes of the carbon standards. Let's offer the market one high quality standard and let's conform with the integrity committee of the voluntary carbon markets standards that is a multi-stakeholder process of review as to what constitutes an emission reduction, which is real and additional and verifiable and means atmospheric benefits, but also in the world in which we operate really means sustained development outcomes that speak to adaptation in the face of climate change. 
And and you may have answered the last question I wanted to ask you today, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. If one believes that climate change is the great crisis and challenge of our time, what do we need to be doing differently to move forward, to make meaningful progress? Do you think it's we need to do the things we're already doing better and at larger scale? Or are there things fundamentally that you think we, we need to shift? Well, to me, it's all about making markets work. The reason that I was involved with a fantastic team of people and with support of, of a remarkable president of the World Bank of the time, Jim Wolfenson, and his senior managers in pioneering the concept of north-south trade in greenhouse gas emissions reductions was to make markets work. Because you might recall way back in the time of the Earth Summit, this problem was going to be solved by north-south transfers of $350 billion a year, when at the time development finance as a whole was about $50 billion a year. It was a pipe dream. So it the concept of creating a market for greenhouse gas emissions reductions to me and my colleagues at the time was the only way forward. And of course, living inside an institution that is an expert in development economics, the whole concept was, and it's still true today, but it's not panning out that way, is that is the least cost solution for mitigating climate change is to go to the countries who've not been able to apply the most efficient technologies or move as fast towards renewable energy, even though it's abundant in many of their countries. So the trade would be the least cost, most effective way of addressing climate change. So it's a little perverse today that many NGOs and academics criticize that market, criticize what is in effect the least cost approach to mitigating climate change because they are focused on perfection rather than a good enough product in the face of enormous challenge. To my mind, the fastest, easiest, and cheapest way to address climate change is investing in the sustainable development, the energy efficiency, the decarbonization of the developing countries, and especially the poorest countries. And it's not insignificant. The charcoal trade is hopelessly inefficient across Africa. And the emissions that arise from the charcoal trade alone today are the equivalent of the entire emissions of Spain. And in 2030, the entire emissions of Germany. That's the rate at which this is going. So creating markets, making these markets work, and accepting that they're not perfect, but they're the cheapest, fastest way to address climate change is the most important challenge of our time. Thanks again to Ken Newcomb, Chairman and CEO at Sequest Capital. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we wrap up our series on commodities in Asia. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange 
bringing you better benchmarks, better technology and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube or your favourite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.